This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello, welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Ragdoll Street Components. With over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets, it's easy to find the right combination for your bike. We're looking back at the action from the Donington Park around the world SBK and we're sitting here in an airport hotel. It's a little bit different to Barcelona Airport. Hopefully we'll be a little less interrupted for uh, today's podcast, but there's an awful lot of ground to cover. This is round four world SBK. We've had four very different tracks, Aragon, Estoril, Misano, and now Donington Park. And I'll tell you what, we've got a proper fight on our hands. Yeah, we've, we've got an actual championship battle this early. Um, from a source that we might have suspected taking the challenge to Johnny, but um, I don't think anybody thought we were going to leave here with a different championship leader. Um, I even spoke to the Yamaha team manager yesterday who said that they were, given the weather conditions, they were hoping that we might leave with less than 50 points of differential to Johnny at the top of the championship. They're actually two points ahead. Quite amazing. It was one of those things as well, Gordon, because obviously in Mizano we saw Top Rack was able to take a big chunk of points out of Jonathan. It was 15 points. Then we saw in race one he was able to come from the fifth row with a great to take some more points out of Johnny, five points out of Johnny in that race. Then the Super Bowl race comes and goes. Jonathan's able to win that. Top Rack does a good job to be able to finish inside the top six. So suddenly Jonathan's edged out three points over the weekend. And then suddenly in race two, it's a real scrap between them. And we haven't really seen Jonathan have to have a scrap like that in his title contender over the last few years. And suddenly we had this great battle and it was Johnny that cracked. Yes, it was, um, Johnny obviously had to work pretty hard to stay with Top Rack or even try and, try and stay with Top Rack. Um, I mean, he ran off in an earlier race trying to keep with them. Um, so it's definitely a pressure exerted on him. Um, and it was a surprise to see that Johnny, who's been around here a million times, won loads of races here. Okay, they've got a slightly different bike this year, but that's, it's not that radical. It's not so different for them to handle, but. Yeah, he was the one that ended up, because he was pushing the pace a little bit and just a little bit offline, found the bumps at the end of the coppice, which you can't avoid if you go another foot to one side. But he actually found that. But it was significant, I think, that he was trying to get away at that time with top rack right behind him. He, he thought he had the pace, but he didn't. Obviously, he, he just made a small mistake by being a little bit too eager, maybe like Australia last year. It's one of those things, like you said, like Australia last year. We've seen it over the years that Johnny does tend to have one crash maybe two crashes through the season. doesn't tend to make too many mistakes. The big thing for him is always, as we've seen so far this season, we've had 12 races, he's at 11 podiums, and he crashes out of the lead of this one. So he's always at the front. So it is hard to make up those big points, and then Top Rack was able to take good advantage of it. But what I found most interesting was Jonathan had to use the X tyre in this race, the super soft compound tyre. And if you think back over the last couple of years, Kawasaki have always been able to be conservative with their tyre choice. And the whole grid used the X tire, so clearly it wasn't that much of a risk in terms of the data for the teams. But it was interesting that Ray had to feel that he had to use this tire. In the past, we've seen him take a, a step back and make it where maybe he's able to use the zero tire, finish on the podium. But this seemed like almost you had to try and make sure you were able to be right at the front of the field. Yes, I think there's lots of reasons to use or not use the X, but um, at this particular instance, Sunday was definitely lower grip than the previous days because of all the rain probably um, so that would then allow you to use the X and burn it up a bit less over the full 23 laps um, but yes they, but it, it would be, when everybody else can use the X and you can't you put yourself at a disadvantage so maybe they're now finding ways of using the X 
because it should in theory if you if everybody's going to get away with it except you they will have an advantage not just in the early laps yeah, I get a bit sick at times for saying that the, the Yamaha has really become that complete package now in World SBK. And one of the big reasons for it is they can use that X everywhere. Yes. All conditions. Cool track temp, high yeah. track temp, fast tracks that load the tyre right up, or slower tracks as well. They seem to have a bike that can really maximise that tyre. And it reminds me an awful lot of, if you think back to, I think it would have been 2018 whenever we had the introduction of the wider profile tyre. And it was... Michael Vandermark on the Yamaha that was the first rider to really make that work. We saw he was able to pick up a win here at Donington Park, his first wins of World SBK to double that weekend. That was with the big tyre. And now suddenly we have it with the X tyre. They're also able to make that tyre work. Yeah, I think the Yamaha has just become a much more rounded package. Um, I think it's that every bike's got characteristics that uh, can shine or can be not as good as the other guys, depending on the racetrack you go to. But the Yamaha seems to be working pretty much anywhere and everywhere now. Um, and obviously when you've got a rider like Toprak who just is, is so talented and he can use every aspect of the bike in every situation, he's not scared of using the rear hard, he's certainly not scared of using the front hard. It's amazing what he can do on the brakes and turning in. never seen anybody that can use the brakes that hard and turning in and still look more or less in control. Um, he doesn't look, he looks wild, but he, when you look at the bike and the way it is, it's not wild. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's incredible what they can do with that bike now and, and everywhere else. It's becoming uh, maybe the best rounded package in the whole field. And it's got speed now. It didn't have speed before and I've found a bit of that as well. So packages there. Yeah, it is interesting to look at top rack. I think race one was a good example of, obviously we saw that incredible start to the race. We're at Donington Park, so the comparison to Ernst Senna was a very easy one to make. And, uh, <laughs> I think top rack's performance was just as oh. impressive. Ever seen here, like. Scaring me now before wheels, Steve. Don't uh, ask me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll keep it to a minimum. <laughs> I, I, I do think that, uh, like you said there, Gordo, Top Rack, he looks wild because he's big and tall and he's gangly. The legs going everywhere, you see the body moving around, but the bike always stays really stable. And I thought in race one, down in towards the Melbourne Loop, a really narrow line, it was a bit like that at times. Top Rack's got that bike cranked right over in the opposite direction on the entry. And then just throws it into yeah. the corner. He was he was very impressive. Yeah. And it's one of those things, Gordo, where coming into this weekend, Top Rack was the big story in the World SBK paddock. I think almost everyone in this paddock wanted to see him take the chance to go to MotoGP, see what he could do on the Patronus bike. And Top Rack obviously turned that opportunity down. Yeah, he did. And he explained it to us on Friday, just saying, look, I'm happy here. I want to be world champion. Uh, and then conversely he said it's always been my dream to go to MotoGP he said but I want to go there as world superbike champion I actually had a little bit more info about this as well from a few people it wasn't from Top Rack it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything that close to him but it was people close to Top Rack and they said that the offer on the table for Top Rack was not to be on the full factory spec bike Yeah. and uh, for a rider like Top Rack he says that he feels he deserves the opportunity to be on the same spec bike and when you look at MotoGP, over the last two years, at Petronas, Quattararo had a, a full, it was a, a, it would have been a 2020 spec bike last year. Rossi's got a 2021 spec bike this year. The precedent set that the lead rider, or the so-called lead rider at that team, will have the current bike. Exactly. Top Rack deserves that. I can, I can understand that far more for Top Rack to turn down Petronas rather than I want to stay to win the world championship because you see it time and time again, riders don't like to be disrespected. Top rack's yes. a top line rider. 
he's got that ego that comes with a top line rider as humble and as nice as top rack is I tell you what they're all the same and he's got previous because obviously that's why he fell out with Kawasaki and left to join Yamaha because he didn't get a ride at the 8 hour the team decided to go with the two existing riders and, and he wasn't happy about that that was one of the reasons why um, and you want to say something, Steve? Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say the, the eight-hour thing was always an interesting one because the decision had already been made that Toprak was going to leave before he wasn't given the ride in the eight-hour because I know that uh, he had already signed his contract with Yamaha earlier in the weekend. But what was interesting was Toprak's problem at that situation was that, again, he was com- becoming a top-line superbike rider. If you remember Mizano that year, mm-hmm. he was able to go toe-to-toe with Johnny and he felt like, I don't want to push too hard because, you know, I can settle for my points. I don't want to take out the lead Kawasaki rider. I'm still riding for in that factory. And then over the course of the next few rounds, he's getting closer and closer to Johnny. He was getting more and more impatient. He wanted to win. He needed to win. And uh, suddenly we went to Suzuka and he, he felt like he was the the second Kawasaki rider and more or less became at that stage. He was up against Leon Haslam, he was outperforming Haslam, and he went to Suzuka, and he felt like he was an outsider. He felt like he wasn't yes. being given the, the same support that he should have had. And I think that's where, with Top Rack, what's most interesting for me is that's where the influence of Phil Marin has been huge. Because Phil's obviously coming from outside of the Turkish uh, Keenan Safoglu school of management and structure that Keenan has within Top Rack. Phil was totally outside of that. And Phil was very adamant from the outset that Toprak had the talent but needed to apply himself. He needed to, to yeah. work on the areas where he was struggling. And with Phil, he's clearly worked on those areas. He's rounded all those packages out. But it's because Toprak needs people that he trusts beside him. And if you break that trust very quick for Toprak to suddenly move on from you. And that trust was broken by Kawasaki. And it could well have been the case as well for this situation that he might have looked at it and said, Maybe the MotoGP guys aren't for me. If that's the way they're going to treat me, I'll stay on World Superbikes, can win a world championship, and then try and force my way on to the full, the full bike in the future and different opportunities. Yeah, um, it's it's very interesting what you say. There's the character aspect. There's the human aspect of all this. All those things are human traits. That's people not thinking very, very logically and saying, well, you know what, if they're not going to do that, I'm going to find a different way. Um, and yeah, I think Kawasaki wanted to leave him another year before they thought about putting him in the, the, the team, partly for the reasons you bring up there. He wasn't applying himself right. His mentality maybe wasn't the, the that of a factory rider at that time. Um, now, the work they've done with Top Rack, with the bike, and very importantly, with his head and getting his heart pointed in the right direction is what's making the difference. His fitness levels and stuff maybe weren't the same as they were. They're working on that now. Um, his training is riding bikes all the time. He's done a bit, they're trying to get him to do more gym work and so on. As you say, it's all the things that he needs to do to take the next step is what they're working on now. And it's clearly working. It's clearly happening for all of them. Um, and Phil's, he's a clever boy and he's managed to get the best out of him. Uh, as, you know, th- there's the possibility for four Yamaha riders to shine. And at the moment, Top Rack is easily the best of them. And that's given how good Gerloff is. Yeah, I have to say, like, just to, to go back to the influence of, of Phil Marin in the situation, I remember at Bury Ram a few years ago, it would have been the first year working with the Chetty for, for, uh, for Phil, and uh, Keenan was there. And he, I remember I was doing great interviews that year, and you went down onto the grid, and you could see the top rack was very distracted. Keenan's down there, that's taken his focus. It's not really on the task at hand. 
And then over the course of that season, you could see a big evolution for Toprak. And it really was a case of he became more and more of his own man within the garage. And fair enough, Keenan's still a massive influence on his life, but it really was a case of, this is your career. You've got to be able to stand on your own feet. Keenan's got his own stuff to do, and you've got to be able to, to make what you can out of your career. And I think Toprak's getting to that stage now where he's got a lot more self-confidence off the bike to be yes. able to make his own decisions. And that's really important for any rider. But it is interesting, like you said there, Gordon, with it. As it stands right now, Toprak is the top Yamaha rider, quite clearly as well. Gurloff's doing a really good job. He was able to come away with a podium here this weekend. He probably should have had a podium in race one as well. By his own admission, he threw that one away. But um, you'd have to look at it right now and say that Gurloff's made a step forward but needs to just smooth out those edges. Still makes mistakes. and uh, you know, It's easy to look at it and say that it's his second year World Superbikes. This is his fourth year on a Superbike as well. You know, He raced two years in the US on one. So he does have that experience. It is a case of just trying to have it where he avoids making those mistakes because the, the potential is huge for Gerlach. Yeah, absolutely. His talent's amazing. I think he's just pushing it a little bit now. He's, he's trying to find the boundaries because he's, even though he's obviously uh, beaten a lot of regular guys very often in this championship, I think he's also he's still riding a bit hard. Whereas if you want to be world champion, you have to start riding well, preparing well, riding well, and knowing when not to ride hard and when to ride hard. The days of superbike riders winning the world championship by being hard riders is long gone. It's 15, 20 years gone. It's interesting as well for me, Gordon, because I look at a comparison between Gerloff, and you were obviously in the paddock at this stage. I wasn't. Um, I kind of flirted in and out of superbikes back in 2014. But I'd look at Gerloff very similar to how I would have seen Alex Lowe's back then. Very fast, but very flawed. And it took Lowe's a long time to to mature. Yeah. It took him a long time to to avoid making some of the mistakes that blighted his early time. Obviously, enough at that stage, you're on a Suzuki that was on to perform and you're trying to get the performances you can. But he was coming in as a British champion, so same as Gerloff coming in as a domestic superbike rider, riding at a very high level, and then suddenly you jump into the worlds, and instead of being at the front of the field, like for those it was him against Shaky Byrne for the championship, the best BSB rider of all time, you're trying to beat him for a championship. For Gerloff, you're up against Cambodia, the best AMA rider of all time, effectively. And uh, certainly for both of those riders, they would have had their focus on one or maybe two guys in all of their races. And yeah. then suddenly, your focus is on 10 guys and yeah. 10 elite riders as well. And it is a big mental shift to get to that point. And it took Lowe's time, time to be able to adapt to that. It's taken Gerloff time, but the potential he has is huge, like I said. And you certainly are hearing him linked with a MotoGP stage, and it could be a step too too early considering his results in World SBK. But in terms of the what could happen, if it clicks into place for him, he really could do an awful lot. I think he could. He's still got a lot to learn. I think to go to MotoGP now would be a gamble, but it doesn't mean it wouldn't be one that paid off. Um, uh, I think he's most likely to stay where he is, but I think that there's kind of two interesting things that were touched on there about the similarities between Alex coming over in his time and Gerloff coming over in the last couple of years. Yes, there's a lot of things that are true, but the big difference, the big attitudinal change that Alex had to make was to get used to riding with electronics. And I mean with electronics, not against electronics, not thinking, no, no, let take the electronics off, I'll do better. It took Alex a while to get that. Gerloff has come from a championship with pretty high level electronics. So he that's one major hurdle that he hasn't had to take on. 
when he came to to this championship. So that's a two, that's a difference between uh, the the situation that they faced when they came here. But yes, he need, he just needs to polish himself off a little bit. He needs to, but I think he's still just trying a bit too hard um, and relying on purely his pace and his aggression. Um, and we saw the, the the example of that there. He was probably going to just be able to gently move away from Alex, and but he fell off and, and gifted a podium to him. But, you know, everybody can make mistakes, but I think his mistakes are still trying too hard. Look at some of the issues he's had with other riders recently. He needs to tone it down 1%. Very difficult to ask a young rider on the make to tone it down 0.1%, never mind 1%. But his talent's great. It was one of those instances as well in the opening race of the weekend whenever he crashes at Goddard that this was this was the crash of a rider inexperienced at Donington. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, Donald yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was chatting to a few BSB riders about it afterwards and they were just saying, like, there's a reason all those other riders are so wide through Goddard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as he went in, you just saw it. As soon as he went on that line, you thought, oh, and sure enough, just you're not going to do it. Do you know what it is as well? Though? It's, it's one of those situations that uh, anytime you break a bit too deep into a corner and think, oh shit, am I going to be able to make it? You dive straight for the apex. And yeah. at Goddard's, that's the worst thing in the world Every, to do. Everything in the world is against you. It's going downhill both directions. It's you, you have to rely on getting a good drive out or you're going to get past. So you have to maximise your corner speed and your line. He was just a little bit too tight, too early. And because of that, every mistake, if you make that little mistake, there's two, three, four other things working against you. So, yeah, it's it's a very, very specific track, Donington. It's completely schizophrenic. You've got one great big fast flow section and you've got one small but really important because it's at the end. Uh, very tight, hard braking. And especially Goddard's with a bump. You know, the ideal one is to go over the bump. If you go over the bump, you lift the back end and then the electronics starts getting messed about, etc. It's it's one of the, considered it's such a seemingly easy corner, it's actually one of those really tricky ones in world racing. Yeah, how many people have we seen crashing there? How many dramatic ex, uh, finishes have we seen to races at Donington because somebody trying to keep someone behind goes two inches too much and the next thing you know they're three yards wide and somebody shoots up the inside and beats them. We were, they had some great footage this weekend, didn't they, in between the races of all the historic races and the amount of them that were determined at that final corner was fantastic. It was great to be back at Donington. I really loved it. I mean, I first came to races in this track all those years ago. This is the place I used to go. I never went to Silverstone GP. I went to Donington. And uh, it's just a fantastic race venue. And as a spectator, there weren't many of them, but at least they get to see, you get to see three quarters of the track when you sit down at bottom end. It, it was one of those, uh, well, uh, actually, as a fan, this is the one I always tell people to come to. I, I always take, this year is an exception, obviously, because of all the restrictions, but I always take my dad, my sister came over, over one year, cousins come down, loads of family come down, you fly into East Midlands on a Saturday morning, you fly out on Sunday night, and you've got a perfect weekend. You get two days of the track, there's good curry house in town, go to that on, sa- on the Saturday night. <laughs> Just two or three and, uh, it's, it's perfect. This is... One of those weekends where I always recommend to everyone. I think if you get good weather, which in fairness, at times we had good weather this week. Yeah, we did. Friday was but beautiful. This is this is ideal and the racing's always good and Donington's such a contrast. You've got that opening half of the lap where and we saw it this weekend, some bikes worked really well in the opening half of the lap, some bikes really struggled in the second half of the lap. It was who could get a good compromise all the way through. And yeah. this is a proper old school racetrack and you know it's 
it's it's one of those ones that I think is still special, still shows why World SBK should definitely still come to tracks like this. You don't want the the sterility of uh, a lot of the GP style tracks that you get nowadays. This is something a little bit different than it's always absolutely. And you also and the thing about the Melbourne Loop thing is it's very much out of character for the rest of the track. But as a spectator, you can stand probably closer to the race bikes than almost any other racetrack I could think of in the world. Where else can you stand watching them getting the power on coming out of the loop? You're right next to it. I mean, it's 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 a fantastic place to go. And uh, no, it, Donington was good, and especially because we like Mizano, we haven't been there for a while, so it was great to come back to UK. Um, unfortunately, we got some very UK weather conditions, but to be honest, that probably helped to make the races as unpredictable as they were. It might have been more tricky for the well, it was more tricky for the riders and the teams, but it actually added to the spectacle. Miserable for the fans and everybody getting wet, but. It really did throw a, a great big rock in the pool, and it was a no, it's a great weekend this weekend. Yeah, it's tricky for uh, commentators as well. You had to try and uh, guess on your toes for some of the tire selections. I got a few wrong during the course of the weekend, but it easily done as well. But I think Gordo, when you look at Donington, Mizano, two tracks that we haven't gone to for a long time, we go to Aston next as well. And actually, in Aston. We'll have a rental street sessions interview with Jonathan Ray where we'll be able to get up to speed with Johnny about how his season's progressing and how that battle with Top Rack is going to be. But Aston's going to be really important for Johnny because that's yes. his best track of the year. That's yes. a track where for a long time he's been pretty much unbeatable and he's going to need to have a big weekend when we go to Aston. He does. Uh, he's going to have to find all of his uh, previous abilities there and then some. And Aston being Aston, that people can stay together. So he might have a lot of company at that race, even for the first half of it. And then anything can happen again. So yeah, this is, this is the very critical weekend. Some people will maybe look at Donington as a pivotal weekend because the championship league changed. But I think the outcome of Aston is going to be a much better litmus test for the outcome of the season. If Johnny can win three races there and even a top rack second in, in all of them, um, then that's job done for Kawasaki and him. Um, anything less than that will be difficult because there will be tracks where the Yamaha might just simply work better than the Kawasaki. Yeah, we've got new tracks this year as well. We've got Navarra in Spain. Teams have tested there. We've got Most in the Czech Republic. Teams haven't tested there. We are still scheduled to go out to Indonesia at the end of the season. So there's a lot of challenges for the teams out there right now. And I think for us, before we take a break on the show, we'll just finish off by talking about that championship battle between Jonathan Ray and Top Rank Grasgogyogdu because... There's only a couple of points between them now, and we've seen Estoril, Mizano, and now Donington Park, where Toprak's just taking chunks out of Jonathan's lead. Yes, and it's it's a it's a it's an interesting dynamic, and it just shows you what rider confidence does for someone when they when they reach that peak of the wave, and they get another good result, another good result. Even the poor wet qualifying for Toprak didn't deflect them from the weekend. That is the kind of self-belief that you can't buy and can only be earned or come from inside. And it is astonishing how self-confident Tobrak is, considering how quiet he is. He doesn't boast about stuff, but if he feels that he can win, he'll say, you know, I think I can win today. He's not scared, but he, he, he sometimes looks like a man out of place. He comes from a very different culture. But when it comes to the racing, he's now found a very rich seam. So let's see where it goes. Look at Rinaldi, two race wins in Mizano in the heat, and we thought, okay, Rinaldi's now found his setup. Well, he didn't have that this weekend. So that's the, the, the one thing we need to look at for Top Rack. Is he going to hit a racetrack where he just, he and the Yamaha just can't make a difference? But at the moment, 
you're looking at thinking, well, that's been a lot of different tracks. And as far as he might have had luck here or not luck there, but yeah, he's he looks like he's going to be able to carry this fight to Jonathan for more of the season than anybody else at this point. I think it's fair to say Aragon would have been that test for him. That's always been his worst track of the yeah. year. And he was able to come away with that flying colours, podium in the dry. And yeah, fair enough. Suddenly it was a bit of a struggle for him. But if Top Rack struggles, our sixth place finishes in the wet conditions, and that's what we saw at Donington as well when he was off the podium in the Super Bowl race. If that's what his struggles are, it gives him a chance. Because over the last few years, Bautista's struggles were he crashed. And suddenly that's 25 points gone to Jonathan Ray. We saw Scott Redding inconsistent with Ducati, same as what we saw with Bautista. Chaz Davis in the past as well. Davis would have a few non-scores and Ray would take advantage of that. I think the one thing that's interesting for me is that Top Rack's clearly a much more rounded package. Now, the Yamaha, like you said earlier on, is much more rounded. And it's hard to see too many sheer weaknesses for Top Rack. Obviously, the Super Bowl session highlighted one. But other than that, it's really difficult to see too much of an issue because even from the fifth row of the grid, he was able to make great starts. He was able to, obviously, in Saturday's race, take the lead after a lap and a half. He was able to get up into second place halfway through the opening lap. And some of the moves he was making, like the move he made on Vandermark through Stark, he's, he was making moves down Crane of Curves. He was, he was just impressive. He was the... A couple of riders said to me that part of the reason why he made so much ground in the very initial part is because other riders in front of him, jostling for position, weren't on that ideal line. And Top Rack said, I saw this very narrow dry line. He said, is that okay, I go. And he just went down it. So he actually ended up, because other people weren't there, he thought, well, I can go there. So that was part of what it did. But yes, when you, when you go offline onto the damp round the really fast corners, well, I mean, that's amazing to watch. Uh, and it shows how much confidence is. And, and, and feel and understanding. I think the thing that Top Rack's got is feel. And in those conditions when it's a bit iffy, that can translate into position. But he's, his aggression's amazing, but he's not... Nobody talks about him as a dirty rider. It's one of those ones I said around comms as well, whenever it was... He was in the middle of a scrap. Could have been with Johnny in race two. And all the riders actually love a battle with Top Rack. Because yeah. they know that he's not going to put them in harm's way. I know Scott Redding at the start of last year felt that it was a little bit aggressive from Top Rack. But when you talk to him now, he understands that Top Rack's a lot like Mark Marquez. He'll put his bike in a position where he can make the move, but he won't make contact. He won't get too close to one another. It, it's very similar to, you know, Van der Mark's a bit like that as well. But how many times have we seen him and Lowe's side by side over the last three or four years? This weekend in Donington was the first time I can remember them ever actually making contact with one another. There's a lot of clean, aggressive yes. riding in the middle of the world superbike path. And uh, Top Rack's the one that... Uh, I think everyone looks at their pit board and sees top racks behind you and they get a little bit worried. But they're not worried because there's going to be something crazy happening. You've got total faith in top rack that he could look a little bit wild, like we were saying earlier yeah. on. But he's got the bike in line, he's got the bike under control, and he's predictable. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, he's he's able to do things with a bike that you, you don't expect him to do. But in terms of, of being a clean rider or not, things like that just aren't tolerated at that level. Look at the problems that Gerloff's had. You know, he does. You don't want to become a target for other riders because they will not give you an inch. Everybody gives each other respect, and everybody gives each other enough space to so that they're not spoiling two people's races. Um, and Top Rack's capable of doing that. He's learned now. There are standards of on track behaviour that we don't understand because we are not operating at that level. Um, and the riders all are quite happy to push the other guy out a block past them, but. 
there are within that what looks like a, a crazy move on TV sometimes to them is actually yeah I left them at, at three inches of space there it's my fault so they don't get upset about it but Top Rack is uh, no it's a joy to watch him it's, it's an absolute joy to watch the guy uh, the way he goes about things and always everybody that races against him seems to have quite a high opinion of him that, that's a good marker you know that, that, that to me is a really good marker of A, his talent and B, the fact that he's He's accepted and people understand how good he is. Yeah, we're going to take a break on the Panicast podcast presented by Rental Street Components. And when we come back after the break, we're going to look at some of the other leading riders in World SBK and also a really impressive weekend from BMW. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Panapass podcast presented by Rental Street Components. And they, Gordon, we saw during the course of this weekend the inconsistencies of Ducati really did come back to the fore and it came back to haunt a lot of their riders. Chaz Davis was still fairly well hobbled by his shoulder injury. Yeah. He was down playing it in the lead up to the, to the weekend, but caught up with him on Saturday after race one and it really was causing him a lot of issues. He said that he just didn't have, didn't have the strength in the shoulder and he's expecting by Aston that he'll be pretty much back to full health. But Donington Park, with so few places where you can take a break around here, it really is a case of if you're a little bit below par, it's a very difficult weekend. Yes. Um, yeah, Chaz admitted at the end of the weekend how things were with his shoulder. Um, he said it's like two, if there's five stages of problem, he's on two or three. But that's still not good when you're, especially in the slower sections in this track for braking. And then all the fast changes of direction you have to do. You have to put a lot of force into it. And yeah, you can use your legs as more than anything else. But at the end of the day, you're still holding a set of handlebars that are alive underneath you. And there's a lot of, you know, the riders have always got calluses and blisters in their hand. That's how much effort they have to put into to muscle these things around if you want to win. Um, so yeah, it was very difficult for Chaz, but it was just not, and you can't say Donington's not a Ducati track. But it, it, it definitely wasn't a Ducati weekend and everybody on Ducati struggled this weekend. Um, partly, and it's, I think there's a temperature issue with Ducati. There's definitely a maneuverability issue relative to the other bikes. Um, certain corners you can use the Ducati to corner and power on better than the other bikes. And most, in every circumstance this weekend, it was tough for Ducati. And the top speed advantage has definitely been negated. I think it's still there. They're saying it's not. But I think it's it's a lot less. It can't be made up for. And the straight in Donington is 550 metres. You've not got enough space to, to, to utilise that potential advantage anyway. Well, it's also a straight where not so much the, the last corner onto red gate, but from coppice then the back straight, you're rolling through their third gear. Yeah. You're carrying a lot of momentum through there. We saw in Mizano that Rinaldi did still have that top speed advantage yeah, at yeah. different times. But it does seem that for Rinaldi, it's when the track is really hot and slippery, He's got that advantage, and uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that he can always make that X-tire work in those conditions, and he's a lot like Bautista in terms of his size. Yeah, bizarrely, you'd think the Ducati being the highest revving and the most powerful engine should be able to negate the issue of rider size, but maybe it's an aero thing, maybe it's a, a, a characteristic of the engine, but it does. the Ducati definitely does seem to respond better to smaller riders. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's. That, I think there's still so many question marks around that bike. 
It's unreal. Um, and a, temp- a temperature thing also probably didn't help them. The ex-tire, yes, the, you know, the lighter or small riders should be able to use the ex-tire. But we've now seen the change in that dynamic where everybody's now using it. And it's amazing, isn't it? When that tyre came out, everybody just panned it completely, said, this is a waste of time. What are they talking about? What are they doing? And on a probably not very different development of it now, everybody's now using that grip to go for it and gamble a little bit. And the rewards are there if they can get it to work. Well, you say gambling. That was probably the right word for Scott Redding this weekend. Uh-huh. This was another tough week for Scott. It's on the back of Mizano. Mizano was the first weekend he had in World Superbikes where he didn't get a podium. He had the same this weekend in Donington Park. Didn't score points in the first two races. Had a nasty high side in race one down Craner Curve. Very nasty. And uh, he was he was he was a bit lucky to get away with that one. And uh, then in the Super Bowl race, Scott's hatred of the intermediate tyre meant that he couldn't use it. So he went with a full wet tyre and it was the wrong option. Yeah, it was. And it was his choice. It was uh, um, Scott's big and man enough to admit when he made a mistake and he said it was his choice and therefore it was the wrong choice. Um, he's honest. He's refreshed. I mean, he's a breath of fresh air in this championship, Scott. The way he speaks about things. If he's happy, he'll tell you. If he's not, he'll tell you. Um, but yeah, he just looked like a man that was really struggling and toiling all weekend. As you say, he was very lucky to get away with that crash. That was a, he had a couple of potentially nasty injuries from that. Um, he was hobbling around on Saturday. Um, obviously, these guys exist in a world of pain half the time anyway, but that it, it, it just added to the problems they had. But yeah, the intermediate tyre works really well. I don't know why anybody, everybody that uses it, having not used it, Nobody likes using it. Now everybody's saying, wow, you know, surprise. Michael Van der Mark was, was, was saying it was the right thing to go for and he'd think he only used one before. Um, I think that you can make the tyre choice and you get it wrong, that's fine. And he he said it is his choice now after Aragon. He's making the tyre choices. Um, but yeah, it was just an incredibly tough weekend. They almost saved themselves with fourth. And, the, you know, it's a fight, real fight in fourth in the second race. But yeah, that was a, a tough weekend for all Ducati guys, particularly him. And it's home. He was, he was British champion two years ago. It must have been a hurtful weekend, this one for him. He looked upset at the end. I think it's worth saying as well for Scott that he wasn't the only rider thinking about the wet tyre options. We saw Top Rack and Alex Lowe's made yeah. very much last minute decisions to change on the intermediate tyres. So Scott wasn't wasn't alone one, but he was alone no. with the front runners. There were guys at the back of the field, Luke Mossy, Cresson, a few, few that weren't going to be much of actually using the tyre as well. But uh, I think for Scott, this was this was one of those weekends where, and you don't want to sound too harsh, but when Scott's on, he's phenomenal. Yeah. But this was one of those weekends where we saw the emotional Scott come out. We saw him in the middle of the Super Bowl session, banging his tank with frustration. We saw him shaking his head as he made his way to the grid with those wet tyres. He knew he was on the wrong option. And he is a character that lets his lets his character out. And that can be a strength, but more often than not at this level, it's about keeping your cards close to your chest. Yes. Um, yes, I agree with that. But I think the problem is, the, the greater problem and the thing that preceded this and continued in this weekend is that this was supposed to be his year. In his head, in Ducati's head, this was his year to win the World Championship. He did his homework last year. He finished, he did some great performances last year in a very odd year in his first year in, in World Superbike. Um, and, and, you know, it was pretty close. Ultimately, this is a year things, sh- all those problems should have been sorted that they might have found last year. And he would be with Johnny every weekend. 
and it hasn't happened. It simply hasn't happened at all. So you can imagine that what that's doing to a rider's, we talked about top rights confidence earlier. You think what that does to any rider's confidence the opposite way, especially somebody that's so emotionally invested and, and, and demonstrative as, as Scott is. Um, so yeah, you kind of felt for the guy this weekend because you do want to have another manufacturer and another uh, rider fight. You want a five-way world championship fight. Two is good, but five would be better. Um, and Scott's a bit off it now. Can we say that he's not going to be a threat for the rest of the year? Well, we're at round four. If things go the way they're supposed to, we'll have 13. So there's a lot of water to go under a lot of bridges yet. Yeah, and I, I asked Scott that on Sunday, and uh, he did say, look, that's one good weekend for me and one bad weekend for them. Like, as it is right now, you do struggle to see a disastrous weekend on the horizon for Ray because for six years he hasn't had one. For Top Rack, he's now got that consistency. The Yamaha's working really well. You're looking at it like it's, and, and I said it on air, you're looking at it like it's a two horse race right now. And it's a two horse race until Ducati solve their problems and win a lot of races. And the Ducati didn't make a big step forward over the winter. They didn't develop the package. The other teams did. Yamaha's made a step forward. Kawasaki, it might be a groundbreaking upgrade from last year, but it is an upgrade. We've yes. seen that with Lowe's as well. His performance is much more consistent this year. BMW this weekend, they brought new parts to the table. So they're developing their package. Ducati have stood still, and that's clearly been something that's really frustrated Reading and Chaz Davis in particular. I don't know if they've stood still, but they've certainly gone around in circles. I think it's a case of they're maybe going back to trying things that they haven't worked before. Um, they, they have brought some new parts and so on, but it's, it doesn't seem to be making a difference. I think the problem with the development of Ducati is that whatever they do, it's not making it better. That's what it seems to be to me. Yes, they haven't had a big change or, or a, 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 um, a remolgation or anything, and maybe they need to, but the... Yeah, the other people, nothing stands still in this championship, even though we've got so much regulation and the, the rules and you have to use so many standard components. Everybody's pushing. And all those tiny little 1% gains that Yamaha have made, look at what it's happened now. BMW need to make a big step change. They have all the riders are having problems at the back end of the machine, but that's what they're trying to do. That uh, stiffer chassis that they brought, for that Vandermark used and Tom didn't, was designed to improve the rear end performance of the bike. They're trying. They're, they're trying to, you know what, they've identified the problem and they're trying to get it fixed. I think the problem inside Ducati is that it, from what, from outside, and they're not talking about it when you ask them in specific terms, but from the outside, they don't really know what they need to do to make the bike better. Yeah, I think for me, one of the big problems for Ducati is they've got a small operation and they're trying to win a MotoGP World Championship as well. And yeah. Yeah. To develop the World Superbike package, they brought out a bike that was a game changer a couple of years ago. It was clearly the best bike out there in the grid. And the rest of the grid is closing up on it. But they've got to try and win a World Championship in MotoGP. And rightly, that's what our focus is. Because mm-hmm. that's the big prize for them. And it's something that they haven't been able to do in the best part of 15 years. So they want to give themselves that opportunity. I can understand shifting the focus onto away from the Superbike and onto the GP programme. And I think it's interesting, Gordy, obviously you mentioned BMW there as well. This was a really strong weekend for BMW. Sykes might have had two crashes, but he was fast and consistent in free practice one, qualified well, both bikes on the front row of the grid, comes away with two podiums for Sykes, Van der Mark on the podium in the Super Bowl race, BMW in the top six all weekend. Yeah, amazing. Um, they had a test in Navarra and they, they found a lot of things there. Um, may not have had the chance to do act on all of them, but uh, they certainly brought improvements from there. There's also the nature of the track here. 
there are some heavy breaking and, and turning in ways. What the, the, the team have, have basically spoken to us about what they can't do at the minute is what the Yamaha can do, which is to break and turn on hard on the brakes and then flip the bike in. They can't do that. They've kind of got to get the braking all done in one go and then turn in. So that's a possible advantage they, they, they lose. But at Donington, it's in three places. Okay, they're important places for overtaking. But Sykes, who used to just win every race here, and it's his home round and he knows every bump of the place, was able to get on the podium twice. But Vandermark, I think the, the, the litmus test there was Vandermark, that he could get on the podium in one of the races. Um, the, the, that's a, at the beginning of this year, and even maybe even last round, or the last two rounds we've spoken about this, and you're like, BMW seem miles off. Well, it shows you how close the margins are here now, that they make a small improvement and all of a sudden they make massive gains in result. I think that's where this championship is now. Five strong manufacturers competing hard. If you can get a 1% or 2% gain, you can be at a 5% increase in results as long as your rider's on it that weekend and you've made the right tyre choices, etc. I found it quite interesting, Gordon, because obviously BSB started last week and yeah. uh, it was triple header race at uh, Oldham Park and I was chatting to a few people inside BSB over the course of this weekend and one of the things I found really interesting was they were making fun of the lack of depth in World SBK and for the life of me, I can't understand that because when you look at the grid, it's filled with proper world-class riders all the way down the field. Fair enough, there's a few riders that you look at and you think, all right, maybe you know they'd be a little bit out of their depth in different places, but most of this grid could go on to a GP race and not disgrace themselves. And uh, you, look at, you look at this championship and I think we're on that cusp right now where it is all about those small margins. If you have found just a small bit, you can make a big step forward because it's so close, especially in that like sixth to twelfth kind of battle. It is just about finding that small step. And that's where I think somewhere like Axel Bastani impressed me again this weekend. Bastani, very much an unheralded rider from his time in the Supersport paddock. He did a good job in the European class, if you think back to when he was on the Pichetti bike. Yeah. It was him and uh, Alessandro Zaccone and they were both really impressive in terms of their pace. But Bastani kind of went out of sight, out of mind. And you look at what he did in Mizano, when the Ducati clearly worked well, Rinaldi able to win those races and finish on the podium in all three of them. And you come to Donington where the Ducati was struggling. And for a long time during this weekend, Bastani was yeah. about as impressive as anyone on the Ducati. Yeah, no, I mean, the depth of field thing um, we have to deal with because if anybody uh, outside this this championship thinks that there's no depth of field here they're, they're dreaming of, they don't know where they are I mean where's the depth of field in BSB then you know uh, sorry you know I, I just don't think there's any comparison um, and if people think that why don't they come here and, and, and prove themselves here because this is a step up it's like a rider from here going to MotoGP I think the gap between all those classes is getting wider not narrower um, and partly because there's competing manufacturers here who've all got satellite teams and, and usually good riders on them the depth of field here is very strong um, that's, I think that's just an incorrect uh, read of the situation. Uh, ultimately, yeah, somebody like Bassani can make a name for himself here, but it's because he's got a bit of talent and because our rules are level and because probably his team are getting good support from Ducati because it's easier for all the manufacturers here to make one set of kit and one electronics program for everybody. The logistics of it dictate that that's the way it's going to go. Bassani's usually not going to beat Scott Redding or, or Rinaldi, so they just give them good support as well because it's actually easier. The same with Kawasaki. They give everybody the same electronics, more or less, because it's just easier. The regulation state they have to as well. Um, yeah, 
I, I just don't understand anybody's negativity towards Aura Superbike now. It's it's very difficult. The boss of the BMW racing program yesterday, I bumped into, literally said the, the problem. We talked about this, we talked about that, and effectively he just summed it up saying, "Look, this is a really difficult championship with five top manufacturers, and they've all got sat- most of them have got satellite teams now that are strong or stronger." Eugene Laver is on a satellite BMW now. He's not having a great time at the minute. But there's no reason why you can't come good at the end of the year. He was a factory rider last year. So the the depth of field thing is is very strong here. And the levelness of the playing field here at a high technology level relative to BSB or almost any other championship is evident. But that makes it more difficult because you have to get all that side right as well. It's not just about riding talent. It's about everybody's talent. And we've built back again here to a very, very high level. You say that the, the high level now as well, Gordon. We saw Honda make a step forward this weekend, and it's going to be interesting to see whether that's just the Leon Haslam factor at Donington Park, or whether they're able to really maintain that at Aston. Bautista's had good results at Aston. Haslam's been on the podium with a lot of different bikes on Aston as well. That's going to be a good test for Honda. It's going to be a real test for Honda because every race is so far. Um, Donington, yes. Leon, given his knowledge, given his pace, given his understanding of the racetrack, um, was very impressive this weekend. So you do have to kind of take that out of where are Honda. You expected Leon to do well on a tricycle here. Um, Honda have got fairly fundamental problems, it seems. Um, partly electronics and partly, uh, I think, chassis. Uh, obviously, they're very secretive and they don't like telling you exactly what's wrong. They were a very, very close camp inside Honda, um, as it always is in the official HRC team. But there's another reason to look at the, the level of this championship. Is it HRC with, in the second year with the same bike are not doing particularly well? Um, not certainly not reaching the targets that they must have set themselves. So Assen, yeah, Assen is going to be a big, a big uh, opportunity for them to move forward. If there's something that they learn from here, if there's, there's pieces of the, the 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 package they're putting together one by one, but Assen may also show up any problem if they do have real problems with the chassis because it's such a fast. You get some really slow bits where they took away the old parts of the track, but most of it is big fast flowing. So with an engine, you're halfway there. If you get a really fast engine, you should be able to stay with everybody. But it's those changes of direction while braking, while accelerating, that lets you know if you've got a good setup as well and how they use the tyres. Because the tyre, you know, Assen's a, is a magnificent place to go racing. Um, it's like a flat crane of curves, the whole thing. You know, so if you get the bike to change direction well, you should do quite well at Aston. But yeah, Honda's, it's a big test for Honda, but I think every track's going to be a big test for Honda. And they, I think they need to make changes to that bike. We're going to finish up, Gordon, with just a quick bit about the rider market as well. It's starting to fall into place a little bit. I heard a rumour that Lausanne uh, is going to stay on the K- on the GRT bike for next season. There was a bit of talk this weekend. Obviously, he fractured a finger and was ruled out of action. There was talk this weekend of Taz McKenzie trying to get onto that bike. And that was kind of mixed by Yamaha saying that the wet weather meant that uh, there was too much of a risk of crashing and damaging the bike and this, that and the other. But uh, Nozani looks like he's going to stay on for next year. So that's one of the one of the good seats taken up there, one of the Yamahas. And uh, obviously we've seen Top Rack sign on for next year. We're waiting to hear news about other other riders around the paddock. And uh, one of those riders, Scott Redding, there is a lot of talk in around the paddock of... Uh, Ducati and Scott being a little bit disgruntled with one another, both feeling that the other should be doing a little bit more to find a better performance. Yeah, um, it certainly looks that way. Scott's not shy in explaining um, what he's what he feels that needs to be done with the bike and what needs to be improved. 
Um, and Ducati are, are, have a reputation, deservedly or otherwise, of being quite hard on the riders and, and requiring the riders to succeed. And if they don't, they, they move them on. It's certainly not working out either the way either of those, those parties, uh, wanted to. So maybe they both need to make a change. Maybe somebody needs to go somewhere else. Maybe somebody needs to make a different choice for the rider. Um, ultimately, it's strange because it's the time of year we should be talking about riders, but we're only around four. So if I was a team manager or a manufacturer, I'd be sitting thinking, well, I want to see how this guy is after eight races. Normally we would be at seven or eight races by now, rounds. So now it, it's, it's, it's kind of the right time, but it's also a bit early, but people are actually starting to sign. And I think Yamaha might, might just, everything stays the same more or less next year. Yeah. You wouldn't be too surprised if Yamaha decided to keep Gurloff where he is at GOT because He's got a good crew around him. He really loves working with Les Pearson. And there's also that thing about being an independent writer. He's able to always look at it and say, well, you know, I'm doing a better job than Locatelli on the factory bike. So, you know, he'll feel good about himself. Lock is actually doing a good job as well. So it could be where Yamaha just, just stay where they are. I think what's going to be interesting is Honda, because obviously Bautista is one of the highest paid riders on the grid. Probably the, the highest paid rider in terms of a base salary on the grid at the moment. And he's obviously underperformed. Honda has Leon Camier in charge now. Camier wasn't involved in the team that decided to hire Bautista, so he's got no skin in that fire. He's not going to be afraid of trying to make a change. Uh, yeah, I mean, potentially, yeah. I mean, a change has to be made. Uh, to me, I think they need to change the bike. We've said that already. Um, but I think the riding lineup is anybody come, going to come in and transform that thing? Well, maybe they are. But it, they seem to we won't see how the riders can go on the bike until they get the bike right, but maybe they need a change of rider with a fresh set of eyes to say, look, you know, no, okay, right, I understand there's this issue and so on. But he'll look at HRC and resources they're putting in and the people they've got now, super bike people looking after it. I think one thing we can definitely say, it was fundamentally a major error to arrive in World Superbike with a lot of people from MotoGP and no World Superbike experience, recent World Superbike experience, especially with a new machine that you're trying to turn from a road bike into a race bike and so on with all the freedom of electronics i think we can now tick that box and say that was a big mistake that was a strategic error the the tactical side how they move on from now maybe they need to start making those big changes and but at least now they've got real super bike people looking at looking into it and saying explaining to people who they obviously trust to say look sorry this is wrong that's wrong you know, but that's why I think they maybe need to make changes to the bike. Maybe they try to bring too much MotoGP and the pure engineering and, and metal side and maybe even dimensions and so on. Um, that, yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a, a, another new version of that bike, even the, for only 500 units that are homologation special for next year. Cause I think they might have some issues. Um, that maybe can't be solved in the current rules framework. Obviously, this weekend we saw both BMW riders on the podium. Has Fife done enough to be kept on for next year? Um, difficult to say with Tom. I mean, he's, he's, he's a world champion. He's still sometimes the fastest guy on the bike in any weekend. Um, yes, but depending on who they get to, to replace him, if they wanted to replace him with whom, you know, who, who are they going to get that's going to be a better rider than Tom that will take it? Um there will be candidates, it's possible. Has he done enough? Yeah, no, I don't know. I think he's done a good job this year. I, th I think he has. He, he's done a patient job. Yeah. I think he's been a, done a patient job this year. And he is very good at feedback 
I think that's the thing about it. He's got an incredibly cookie riding style compared to anybody else, which doesn't help. But, and again, speaking to the team this weekend, they said that the, both Vandermark and Tom, who've got very different riding styles, um, and they're very different characters and ways of going about things, are now converging almost completely in what they, they each of them need. And it was noticeable they had a different solution on the weekend and one rider had better results than the other one. Now, okay, Donington, Tom's track, maybe that was the difference. But the two podiums came for Sykes and not Vandermark. And, you know, again, maybe that's the weather, the, the understanding of the track, etc. But, yeah, you, you, you couldn't blame them to carry on with, with, with Tom next year. Um, but you could also see they think, okay, maybe we need another rider. But already in round four, they've got three podiums. Well, the way it was looking this year, that was you were thinking, wow, you know, when's that going to happen? They, they, that really were Honda and BMW were definitely a bit behind the curve at the beginning of the year. Um, so maybe part of the reason for that is that they're now following the feedback from somebody like Tom who's so experienced and rode so many different bikes. And um, what about Kawasaki for next year as well? Obviously, Jonathan Ray's on the book for a year contract with Kawasaki, but Lowe's contract is up for renewal. Yeah, um, you could go either way uh, and get another rider in as a second rider. If Jonathan Jonathan's uh, hunger and uh, desire to win, which just seems limitless, uh, continues, then you're looking at having a second rider. Effectively, whether you treat them, I'm sure they do treat them exactly the same, Um but Lowe's would be a good bet to stay. Why not? Um, he, he gets good results. Yes, he could be fallible. Yes, he made a mistake this weekend when it, they would have had a definite podium. Um, maybe most riders at that level, but when, when Alex is on, he's really on. Um, and he's more consistent than he was. He's, uh, he's not finding the Kawasaki a step up from other bikes he's ridden in this class, which again think says a lot about Jonathan and, and the way he goes about things and his pure talent. Um but yeah, you why would you get rid of someone else unless they were wanting to bring in a challenger to Jonathan? Who would you bring in? And maybe you want to maybe Jonathan just literally earns enough so much money that you need to be thinking of a second rider in terms of a second rider. But I I can't see any reason why they wouldn't keep Alex unless they've got a surprise up their sleeve when they think they're going to have two. They, they want to fight with themselves for the World Championship and spend more money, more resources, whatever, to do so. But both sides of that garage of one World Championship, so obviously one six and one, the other side one, but there's obviously talent on both sides of the garage there. So somebody really good uh, that could go in there from anywhere would have a, a proper package to take on the world. It, it, again, it's reasons to change. It's reasons to change. Has Alex done enough podiums last year and will he do enough this year to to justify staying? Well, he probably needs to not do what happened in the Super Bowl race from his point of view. But also, um, that could happen to anybody. That was a, a slightly strange circumstance. He, he, but his consistency is so much better than it was. He's now understanding the Kawasaki more. And I think his feedback is appreciated by the team as well. So... Yeah, you would stay with Alex. Yeah, we're going to sit down with Jonathan Ray next time out in Aston for a Rental Street Sessions interview. And we're also going to get Alex Lowe's on a future show as well. So we'll be able to get the thoughts straight from the horse's mouth over the course of the next couple of rounds. But uh, Gordo, it's been good fun here at Donington Park this weekend. Fantastic. And, uh, you've, uh, you've got a nice little spin back up to Scotland. Come. I've got, um, I'm looking out the window now thinking, am I putting the waterproofs on now? Or am I inevitably putting the waterproofs on later? I don't know. I might, oh, the sun's just come out. I might have a gamble. Yeah. I, might, I might have a wee weather-based gamble like a lot of people this weekend, but 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, with all my super bikes here, I actually finished all my work last night, which is amazing. You never finish on a Sunday night anymore because of that blooming internet thing where it's always eating more stuff. But I've actually got, as far as I can tell, unless I've made a terrible mistake, I've actually finished all my work for the weekend on a Sunday night, which is first time in ages. Well, I tell you what, the only work you had to do was come here, a few cups of coffee. Oh, no, I'm forgetting. This is work. Sorry, I'm forgetting. This is work as well. So, no, sorry, I take it all back. I'm working on a Monday. But, hey, it, as work goes, this is pretty fun, yeah. Enjoy it, mate. You know, I always enjoy doing a podcast because you get to talk about the stuff you've seen. Yeah. You write it in the night time and then you talk about it on the Monday after. I, I always find the pod quite good just to be able to get your thoughts collected after the race weekend. And that's why it's quite good for us to be able to do it now on the Monday, Tuesday yeah. after a race meeting as yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. to recording during the weekend. But uh, Gordo, until uh, until we're back again for the Dutch round in a few weeks' time, it's been great fun sitting down and chatting to you about World SBK. So a big thank you to Gordon Ritchie for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you very much, mate. Enjoy it as ever. And a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's Paddy Pass podcast presented by Rental Street Components. And a big thank you to everyone that supports us on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a lot of content over the course of the rest of the season available to start Patreon supporters, especially over Grand Prix weekends where myself, David, Adam and Neil sit down to dissect the action at the end of each day of a Grand Prix weekend. So check out patreon.com forward slash podcast. And uh, until the next time on the Paddock Pass Podcast, a big thank you from all the team. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. <laughs>